Thank you, Johnny. Thank you, Greg, for leading us in our announcements and worship team. Uh, if you're kiddo this morning, you can be dismissed. Uh, we're in this very important passage. We, we just wrapped up John chapter 8, and we're turning the corner into John chapter 9, and we, we see a new scene uh, where Jesus is engaging this man who was born blind. And uh, this, this week, as I was preparing, I had the opportunity to catch up with my good friend and mentor, Robert Marshall. If you uh, know Robert, Robert's pastored in the, the valley here for over 40 years. Uh, dear friend, wonderful pastor, uh, just an encouragement to me personally, an encouragement to our church. And uh, he, he's actually spoken here on numerous occasions, so you you've might have met him and had an opportunity to hear from him. But I got to connect with him this week and got to hear about his most recent trip to India. And uh, it, it was funny discussing with him because initially he wasn't very excited to go to India because of having to eat the food in India. And so he said, I'm just going to pack a bunch of Lay's potato chips and that's what I'm going to eat. And, uh, and so it was fun to hear uh, as he returned back to the United States and we connected and got to meet and hear stories and share uh, in all that God has done, uh, that the most amazing thing was not his Lay's potato chips, but just the transforming work of God in the lives of people. And uh, he just sat across from me at a table this week, and he said, brother, we saw God do some amazing things. We saw God move so powerfully. Hundreds of salvations, hundreds of of healings, powerful. He, uh, he shared that there were two pastors. I'll show you. You can flip through some photos here. And uh, this is, you see the giant Gandalf man here in the middle. He's like, when Donna, his wife, who's right there to the right-hand side, is tall, you know it's a, a culture where people are mo mostly of shorter stature. Uh, but Here's Robert, uh, a good pastor friend of his on the left, and, and Donna to his right. And uh, they went in. They were joined by two Indian pastors uh, who, over the course of 11 days, they traveled 1,400 miles at an average speed of 25 miles an hour, they said. And so they covered a lot of territory. They did 19 different meetings where they, uh, I think the next slide has, 850 people gathered in the streets. And he said, they prayed for almost every single person. Every single person would come forward. There would, there would be crusades where the streets were blocked. And as they, they began to pray at the end of their, their gathering, he said, people would walk up and they would forcefully place their hands, your hands, on whatever was hurting them. And he said, there was just a move of, of faith. He goes, I believed like I've never believed before that God could heal and God could bring healing and God could bring transformation. And uh, he said, we, we saw people walk in, um, come walk into a gathering on a crutch. A lady's uh, hip was displaced, saw her leave carrying the crutch, saw her attend the next night, not, not even coming with the crutch. He said, uh, a funny translation story. He said Donna, his wife, was praying for a woman who uh, had just constant migraines and fairly bedridden uh, because of it. 
And uh, they went to her home and they began to, to pray over her. And uh, basically Robert and Donna said, uh, you know, prayed over her and said, how, how do you feel? How do you, um, and through the translation, she said, all over. And so he's like, well, we got to pray again. And she's like, no, it's all over. It's, it's done. It, it's, it, I've been healed. And, and I'm just sitting and I'm hearing these stories and there's just a, a question in my mind of, man, do I, do I believe this? Do I believe that God can really heal people? And even Robert, as he sat across from me having coffee this week, he said, there's just something. I come back to America, sit in Western Christianity, the Western church. And he said, my own brother called me this morning and just said like he needed prayer. He was he was experiencing something that he was having to go to the doctor for. And he said, even in this moment, I just left India. I saw God move powerfully. I saw God heal people. I saw God transform people's lives. And I just had trouble to believe in that he would do that for my brother here in America. There's just a, a, a season of being able to, to really believe and, and, and see the power of God. And uh, they just... Proclaimed, they said 1 Corinthians 2, 1 through 5 was uh, a description of our journey. It says, when Paul says, And when I came to you, brothers, I did not come to you proclaiming a testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom, for I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling, and my speech and my message were not plausible words of wisdom." But what? But in demonstration of the spirit and of power, so that your faith may not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. They walked in and he said, in, in many ways, they, they, the people would, would praise you. They would honor you. And he said, we quickly uh, let them know, you know, it was, it was not us. And to give glory to God. They didn't come in lofty speech. If you know Robert, uh, you know, he's not coming in lofty speech, but God moved powerfully in the midst so that Robert and Donna are not held up, but God the Father is held up because he, they saw a true demonstration of the power of God. So they saw many miracles. They saw services many nights a week. And he said, it's amazing just to see how much need there is and the persecution they experience. He said, when someone becomes a Christian, they are immediately excluded from all government privileges, education, food, health. Many of them would have their possessions destroyed. They were told that they lived in the lowest state because of sin from a past life. And that was the judgment and condemnation that was put on them. And ultimately... When I think of Psalm 27.4, which has been a focus of ours this past year, when I look at, I go, there's, there's so much that's buying for our attention and time. How do we get to the one thing? And then I see a people who are experiencing great suffering and persecution. And Jesus is the only one thing. It says, one thing I've asked of the Lord that I will seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire his temple. He said, people would come up and they said, we don't want your silver or gold. We just want your relationship. We will do the work. 
We will go out and do the work. We just need you to be our backbone. We need you to be our encouragement. We need you. And, and I just look at this and I go, man, they have the one thing. They're believers who want to see Jesus change their nation. And so Robert comes and Robert sits across from me and he shares this story and he ultimately ends by saying, we've told Jesus we will go wherever he wants us to go and we will do whatever Jesus asks us to do. And this time he, he called us to India and we got to go and we got to experience God do amazing, amazing things. I'm wondering if, if that would be our prayer this morning. God, wherever you would send me, God, whatever you have for me, wherever you want me to go, whatever you want me to do, I will go. And I think that's a, that's a bold, bold prayer. And as I heard his story, it encouraged me to see this passage in a different light this morning. So I want you to kind of journey with me as we walk through it. John 9, 1, it says, As he passed by, he saw a man blind from birth. Now, as a blind person, I, maybe it's helpful if you just take, close your eyes for just a second and just picture the back of your eyelids here and being in complete darkness. You're there, you're positioned on the side of a street. You hear a crowd walking by, you hear a people walking by. You don't cry out. You don't even know to cry out. You don't even know what to ask for. You don't even know who is walking by. It's not the blind man who saw Jesus. Jesus saw the blind man. And I want you to open your eyes. And I want you to see with me for a moment how Jesus loved people and saw people in their need. Maybe you're here this morning, and maybe there, there's not been a sense of vulnerability of going like, I don't, I don't know if people know what's really going on. I don't know if people really know how much I'm struggling. I don't know if people know how much I'm suffering. Here's what I would tell you this morning. Jesus knows. Jesus knows, and Jesus sees you. Jesus sees you in that condition. Jesus sees you. He didn't call out for Jesus. Jesus saw this man. Now, similar to Robert in India, where they said that many of them were, were taught to believe that they were experiencing suffering in this life for, for sin that they've done in the past life. It's interesting that right here in this chapter, it, it just surfaces that the disciples are kind of plagued with the same question. They come up in verse 2 and say, Rabbi, who sinned? this man or his parents, that he was born blind? I think this is a common question for us. When we see or experience suffering in the world, how many of us, how often do we go, why are they experiencing this suffering? Did they sin? Was it because of sin? And the truth is, is there is suffering that we experience on this earth due to our sin. There is also suffering that we experience in, on this earth due to the sin of others and people sinning against us. There is other sin, suffering that we experience that may not be rooted back to a particular sin that we committed, but all suffering, because if we go back to Genesis chapter 3, all suffering that is experienced in the world is due to sin. Sin entered to the world, and because of sin, 
we see death, destruction, separation, all of the disorder and chaos comes into the world. So it may not be a particular sin that caused suffering, but all can be rooted back to sin. So when we see suffering, when we see death, when we see pain in the world, this should cause us to hate sin and love Jesus. This should cause us to cry out to Jesus who can bring healing and plans to redeem and restore all that is broken. But Jesus comes into this moment and he comes into this question that the disciples asked, who sinned? Why is this person experiencing suffering? There was a, a thought or a belief that was, was pretty rampant among the population of people that believed that there was a such thing as prenatal sin. It goes back to uh, the, the, the thought that, you know, even in the womb that, that there is sin that comes into the world and that you come into the world and basically even our Mormon friends live in a sense of going, they are, they are brought and, and believe that they, they, they live in this life to make up for what they've done in a past life. And if they live in a certain way or they, they make up for a certain way. And so there was this common belief and this common thread and thought that, that there was sin in a previous life. And if you live in a certain way, then you wouldn't experience suffering. But if you're experiencing suffering, it must be due and related to sin. This also may be an opportunity for people to excuse away the need to actually help someone. How many times have we seen someone on the street and we understand and we see them in their suffering or their pain or, and we go, they did this to themselves. They caused this. And so someone, we, we, sometimes we ask a question, what caused this person to be in this condition is actually a way to excuse ourselves from actually engaging or needing to help or engaging or needing to, to step in or to come alongside or to bring healing. So this is sometimes why we ask, what is the cause of this condition? And we can easily sit with judgment over people who are in suffering, who are in pain, and that's not what Jesus does. Jesus doesn't sit with judgment over, over people experiencing suffering and pain. He comes near and he heals and he opens eyes. Why is this man blind? John 9.3 tells us. John 9.3 says, it was not that this man sinned. Now, the truth is, yes, his parents did sin. Because the Bible tells us, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So all have sinned. So but the suffering is not due to a particular sin from his parents or from himself. It says, it was not this man who sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. He gives us the reason. There wasn't a past reason for the suffering that he's experiencing. There's not something that you can look back on, but God is going to use the suffering that he is experiencing to show the works of God in this man's life. It's interesting to me as I think about this passage in the first few verses of this passage, how often we believe we deserve a life of comfort. Such that when we see suffering in the world, we ask what caused it? Why are they experiencing it? rather than normalizing that and going, that is the natural state of life for most people. But we in American Christianity have this 
this belief or understanding that we deserve something more or deserve something better. And we think that our suffering is unjust. I want you to know and I want you to hear this morning, there is only one person in the world who has ever suffered unjustly. His name is Jesus Christ. And Jesus Christ would be persecuted and go to the cross so that the works of God might be displayed in him. He would experience suffering. He would experience pain. He would experience critique. He would experience the persecution. So the works of God might be displayed in his life. He's the only one who suffered unjustly. All the rest of us, the suffering we experience, we rightfully deserve. If God gave us anything better in our lot in life, it is praise be to God. So ultimately, we all want to know, though, who can we blame for this, right? How often we get into our, a situation of going, why am I experiencing this pain? God, are you causing this pain? Did I cause this pain? And there's a sense of guilt and shame of what I've done. Is there someone outside of me that, that I can? And we're all looking for someone to blame. But the truth is, if we truly got what we deserve, we would all experience suffering in this world. And so we've bought into this false idea of comfort. So for us, as we look into this, and, and I want you to see the, the way in which Jesus comes in, engages, he heals, he comes alongside. And my question initially goes, what is he trying to teach the disciples in this? The disciples ask a question, they, they begin age, engaging and wondering why does certain things happen? And, and ultimately, what he steps in and says, I've done this so that the power of God may be displayed in this man's life. I'm gonna, I'm gonna heal this man. I've, I've chosen to heal this person so that the power of God may be displayed in his life. So here's what I, maybe as a point, maybe you can write this down. Jesus chooses to use the brokenness of our world as a way to display the power of God. Jesus chooses to use the brokenness of our, of our world. We, we've experienced in the life of our church, we've experienced brokenness. We, we talked to last Sunday, there's a lot of brokenness. We, there was a lot of sadness and suffering. And we prayed over couples last week. We prayed over families last week. And we think, what, what, what is this? What do, what do we do with this? What do we do with this suffering? Why are we experiencing this suffering? And, and if I can point you to what is true is God's gonna use the brokenness in this world to display the power of God in our lives, and he has. He did that last week. And so my question is, if, if Jesus uses and chooses to use the brokenness of our world as a way to display the power of God, I think it's right for us to ask the question, where is their brokenness? And how often do we avoid the places of brokenness? How often do we choose to steer ourselves away from, from places where suffering or pain is being experienced. I think about where Robert walks in India and experiences the extreme suffering and persecution, how easy it is for us as Christians in America to turn a blind eye to what's happening in other places in the world. But when you go and you choose to step into the brokenness and pain and suffering of others, you begin to see a miraculous move of the power of God displayed through that brokenness, through the healing, through the transformation 
of people. And so you go, where does Jesus go? Jesus goes to a broken people. Jesus goes to the the pain and suffering of our world. Jesus shows up to a woman at the well who who is the outcast of society. Jesus goes to a paralytic who's been left by the pool and and is longing to get in. He goes to places of suffering. If we're going, why in the world are we not experiencing transformation and miracles? I'm going because we avoid the very places that Jesus is at. So where's Jesus at? Where's Jesus moving? Where's Jesus working? Are these places that I would go? And we ask, why does God, why does his miraculous power show up in these places? Could it be that these are the places that are experiencing the most suffering? We ask, like, why why do we see healing happen in these places? And could it be that those are the very places that are experiencing the most suffering. John 9, four through five, it says, we must work, Jesus says to him, we must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. As long as I'm in the world, I'm the light of the world. We must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. So interesting, Jesus said, a time is coming. He's used this phrase often throughout the gospel of John. He said, a time is coming, a time is coming. My hour has not yet come. There is coming a time where Jesus says, I'm no longer going to be able to do the works the Father has sent me to do. And so there is a, a limited allotment of time. And so he says, while it is still day, We're to do this work. And what's interesting is Jesus is going to go. He's going to be crucified. He's going to resurrect. He's going to go to the right hand of the Father. And then guess who was given those works to do? You and I, the church. In John chapter 14, verse 12, it says, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do. And greater works than these will he do because I'm going to the Father. He's like, Hey, I'm, my time, my day is coming to an end. There's coming a moment where we can no longer do these works. And what a great testimony that is to us to go, our time is limited here on earth. Our time, our allotment that God has given us and, and said, hey, you have a limited amount. It's only day for this. And while it's still today, go and do the works of Jesus. Do you believe that? Do you believe that you can truly do the works of Jesus, that you can truly do what Jesus did. I love Augustine. He, uh, he wrote a book at the end of his life called Revisions. I love this because I think it's interesting because we stand up and, and I, I think of myself as a pastor and a teacher and I, and I go, you know, we, we teach. I'm a human, which means I'm imperfect, right? So it means that over the course of my life, my understanding and my depth, it's not that the word of God changes. It's not that, but I'm coming more into understanding of who God is. And at the end of Augustine's life, he gets to a point like early on in life, he was a cessationist. He didn't believe the miraculous. He didn't believe the power of God could work in in mighty ways in his life. And it says this, how often many of us Reject the miraculous because of the weirdness or strange way in which it's often expressed. We hear about these healings, and maybe you're with me this morning, and you, you're like, I don't know. Like, did that truly happen? Did, did they truly see people's lives transformed? And you question, and rightfully so. It's okay to be a skeptic. 
right? But Augustine says, uh, who, again, perhaps most important and influential figure in the entire history of the church, was once a cessationist who insisted that miracles of healing and prophecy had ceased with the death of the last apostle. But when he became an eyewitness to more than 70 miracles, at the end of his life, he wrote retractions, it's also been called revisions, in which he confessed that he now believed in the ongoing miraculous healing power of prayer. Now, here's the thing. I, I'm wondering, like, are we going to see and participate in the works that Jesus has prepared for us? Do we believe that, that God can do the miraculous in our midst? Do we believe that God can truly bring healing and transformation? I think about new believers. And as I've, I've seen new believers in our church, I, I did student ministry for several years back in Texas. And I, I get to see tons of students come to faith over the years of our ministry. And even here, we've seen people come to faith in Jesus. And you know what I love about new believers is uh, they really believe that they can do the stuff the Bible says. In fact, just last year around Easter, I remember meeting with a, a, a guy in our church and I said, hey, don't take your pulse and, and like, don't let the people that you see within church necessarily set the pace for what you believe is possible. Because it's possible that those in church who have experienced and walked this out for many years have truly gotten to a place where they've settled for a mediocre Christianity that has lost the power of God and the power of the miraculous. So when you read the Bible and you say that you're going to do greater works than Jesus, you truly believe that you're going to do greater works than Jesus. I love this. John Wimber, who started the, the Vineyard Movement, and we say this all the time. I told a group of guys yesterday, I was like, anytime you, you quote someone, you're like, no, I don't agree with all of his theology. Like, here's the thing. You shouldn't agree with anybody's complete theology, okay? So like, anytime we say someone, I don't want to have to caveat it with like, hey, we don't, there's some things that we would question. Here's what I love about John Wimber, okay? And you can question some of his theology and that's okay. But here's what I love about John Wimber. John, who kind of began and, and really came out of the, the vineyard movement and was uh, very participatory in that movement, said that he visited a church early on in his spiritual journey. And immediately after reading the scriptures and reading the Bible and coming to faith in Jesus, it says he, he saw the pastor and he said, I'm going to go up and I'm going I'm to talk with the pastor. So following the service, John approached the pastor and uh, he went up and he said, um, Pastor, when are we going to do the stuff? The stuff. That's what the pastor said. The stuff? What's the, what's the stuff? John replied, you know, the stuff in the Bible, like healing, like casting out demons, like praying for people and seeing their lives transformed. And the pastor replied, oh, we don't do the stuff. We believe they did that back in, in biblical days, but we don't do it today. And with a rather confused look, John Wimber could only say, and I gave up drugs for this. 
I mean, there was a sense of like this radical nature that you see this radical character, Jesus come on the scene and you watch him engage and, and move into places of suffering and pain and you see healing and you see transformation. And, and John Wimber looks at that and goes, man, that's an adventure. I, I want to join God in that. I want to participate in that. And Jesus said, you're going to do works greater than I. I want to be a part of that. And he was easily misled. He said he was told it was sufficient just to believe the Jesus stuff. He was told to, to, to believe that Jesus once did the stuff. And he said, you can, you can sing about the stuff, you give to the stuff, you talk about the stuff, but when are you actually going to do the stuff? And I was like, that's a good question. Church of the Valley sings about the stuff. We give to the stuff. We pray about the stuff. We talk about the stuff. When are we going to do the stuff? And so I was like, that's going to be our point. Doing the stuff of Jesus. Do the stuff. And what I, what I see in this passage is there, Jesus is modeling for the disciples. Here's what it looks like to do the stuff. And then Jesus says, there's coming a time where you're no longer going to be able to do the stuff. Your time is going to come to an end here on this earth. And so, so do the stuff. And ultimately, there's, there's three ways we avoid doing the stuff. And that's what we're going to see in the neighbors and the Pharisees and his parents. There's three things that keep us from doing the stuff. And this kind of surfaces because I go, Jesus is modeling for these disciples. And what I love about this is, is he just comes in and he's doing the stuff. It says in verse six or seven, having said these things, he spit on the ground. He made mud with the saliva. This is totally disgusting, right? Like what, what is going on here? Jesus could have easily just said, be healed. And the man, so why? I don't know. I don't know why. You can come up with your own conclusion on this. But he spit on the ground. He made mud with the saliva. He anointed the man's eyes with mud and said to him, go wash in the pool of Siloam, which means sent. So he went, he washed, he came back seen. Awesome testimony right there, right? Like he's blind, he went, he washed, he came back seen. I'm, my question to us maybe is, is our version of Christianity, does it omit the stuff of Jesus. Like we think about like, I'm, I'm bored with Christianity. Well, like, are we, are we bored with doing the Jesus stuff? Have we actually done the stuff of Jesus? If we, if we truly began to see people's lives transform, the oppressed set free, if we begin to see people see Jesus for truly, truly is, would that not be awesome? Would that not be something that draws you in? Would you not experience that there's something more that Jesus wants to experience? But so often we settle for a tamed Christianity, a caged Christianity. And I'm wanting to see our church unleashed. That we would truly believe the miraculous. So what things keep us from doing the stuff? And I, I think this will, this will kind of bring this around for us and, and help us to see maybe some things that are standing in our way. Barriers from actually doing the stuff of Jesus. The first is recognition 
The second, religion. The third is rejection. Recognition. We fail to see what is possible. Ultimately, we, we live in a state of unbelief. Like we wake up this morning and we walk in and it's Sunday and it's time change Sunday and you're like, oh man. And you know, when we start, there was like six people in the, in the, the crowd, you know, and it's like, how many of us believe that when we walk in that we are going to experience the miraculous this morning? Are we coming expectant? Are we, are we truly believing? Do we recognize the power of Jesus? Do we recognize the transformation he can truly bring? Do we have people in our life, in our neighborhood that we go, you know what? Like he can change them. He can totally transform their life. And the thing is, is we get so stuck in the mundane and the ordinary that we don't see the extraordinary. We don't recognize it. And that's exactly what happened to the neighbors. It says the neighbors and those who had seen him before as a beggar were saying, is this not the man who used to sit and beg? Some said, it is he. Others said, nope, but he, he's like him. Looks like the guy. He kept saying, I'm the man. I'm that guy. So they said to him, then how were your eyes opened? He said, the man called Jesus made mud, anointed my eyes and said to me, go to Siloam and wash. So I went and washed and received my sight. They said to him, where is he? He said, I do not know. Why doesn't he know? Well, because he was blind the last time he was hanging out with Jesus, right? What a goofy question. Where's that guy? I, I don't know. He sent me. I, I'm thinking, how is he walking to the pool of Siloam? Like, how does he find himself to the pool of Siloam to even be able to wash, right? And, and so he stumbles there and the neighbors find him and like, hey, aren't you? And they don't recognize him. Such transformation. You don't recognize him. Have you ever met someone who you've seen the miracle of transformation happen in their life and you go, I don't recognize them. They're a different person. I can tell you that for me and my journey with my parents, um, I came to faith before my parents came to faith. And it wasn't through words. It wasn't through proclaiming the gospel. My parents began to see the radical transformation that Jesus brought into my life. And over years, began to see he's someone different. He's someone different. And that's not a testimony of Justin Bennett. That's a testimony of the power of God and the miracle of transformation that he brings into people's lives. And you see that transformation and, and you're blown away. You're like, I want to see that. I want to I recognize what is possible. I want to recognize the fact that he can bring transformation. I think of last year, um, I was just, I think of the, the critiques we've had over the years, and, and, and people say, uh, like, Justin, you handed out 5,000 flyers in Easter last year. How many people came? And I'm like, I don't, I don't know. I don't know how many people came. But I believe that it's quite possible that someone may get that card on their door and that card becomes an invitation and they walk in the doors and they meet Jesus and Jesus transforms their life. I, 
along for that. We joked yesterday because we had a pancake community breakfast here this morning for our neighbors. And uh, we came and the banner that we had, if you remember this past week, it was super windy. And that banner was gone. It was gone. And so Joe and I joked, I was like, it's going to be the, the best testimony story ever. Whoever finds that banner in their yard and comes to faith, like, oh, there's a church. A banner showed up in my front drive saying that there's a church of the valley, and we went to it, and maybe you're here this morning, and we're like, praise God you're here, right? It could happen. Do you believe it? Do you recognize the power of God? It doesn't happen in the ordinary. He heals a man who has been blind from birth and he sees the transformation there is crazy. Do you believe that that's possible? Think about handing out 5,000 flyers. John Wimber would say this, I'd rather pray for 1,000 people even if only one gets healed than not to pray for any and no one gets healed. I've heard people critique... Some, someone's method of doing something or maybe let's, let's say a method of evangelism. And it's like, you know, I, I don't know. I'll critique your method of evangelism. And it's like, well, you know what? I like my method of doing evangelism rather than your method of not doing evangelism, right? And so like, are we doing the works? Do we recognize what is possible? And I think that will motivate us when we believe that Jesus can do the miraculous and we recognize Jesus and the power that he brings and the transformation that he brings, then I think we'll, we'll want to do the stuff that Jesus did and we'll want to go where Jesus went. So maybe a question as we think about this morning, where are you failing to see and believe that transformation is possible? Where are you failing to see and believe that transformation is possible? I think of the vision that we started with to see a valley saturated with the good news of Jesus. And I used to sit and people look at us with skepticism. I hope we see it. And I'm going to keep believing it. And I'm going to keep preaching towards it. We want to see the valley saturated with the good news of Jesus. Every man, woman, and child know God in word and deed. But not only is it recognition of what is possible in Jesus. It, religion keeps us from Jesus. We settle for a religious mediocrity. They brought him to the Pharisees, all right? So the neighbors are like, hey, where's Jesus? And they're like, I don't know. Let's, let's take him to the Pharisees. So they take the blind man to the Pharisees. And I love, this guy's just getting drugged around town. They brought him to the Pharisees, the man who had been formerly been blind. Now it was Sabbath day when Jesus made the mud and opened his eyes. Now this is one of the only reasons why I can think, like, why did Jesus do this with clay? Why did Jesus? There, there's some that it kind of echoes back into creation, that, that you were made out of the dust and that Jesus is bringing new life out of the dust. So he's taking mud. There's also a sense of like, Jesus just loves to stir controversy. I love that, right? Anybody in here just love to be like, I love to like stir things up and, and there'd be a little bit of controversy. So Jesus is like, you know what? Let's do this. It's on the Sabbath. You know what really bogs the Pharisees down is uh, when you make clay on the Sabbath. 
because that's work. So let's make some clay. And, and this will really stir, the, this will really get underneath their skin and, and their way of doing things. And so he makes clay, he rubs it on the eyes, he sends them. And you're not supposed to heal on the Sabbath. You're not supposed to do it. So here he is again. We, he got in trouble for that the last time, you know, when we talked about the guy beneath the, uh, the healing pool. And uh, Jesus healed in the Sabbath, and there was quite some controversy around that. Here we go, Jesus again in the place of controversy. He comes on Sabbath when Jesus made mud and opened his eyes. What a troublemaker, right? So the Pharisees again asked him how he received his sight. And he said to him, he put mud on my eyes and I washed and I see. Again, just another clear testimony. One of the things I I found as I read this this passage in history, this history would be used uh, in the Lent season people would be baptized. So by the third century, they would read John chapter nine over and over and over again. There's tons of questions that are asked of this man in his testimony, and they would use it as an examination to people coming to faith. How is it that you see? How is it that you've come to faith in Jesus? And this would be an opportunity for people to repeat and share their testimony. And so this John 9 would be, and then they would be baptized on Easter. And so John 9 would be read. And so over and over and over again, we hear, we're like, what do I tell people? Like when I share my faith, it's simply, what has Jesus done for you? How is it that you see? How is it that you've come to faith in Jesus? And he said, you know, I... He put mud on my eyes. I washed. I see. Some of the Pharisees said, this man is not from God for he does not keep the Sabbath, right? But others said, how can a man who's a sinner do such signs? Are there, and there was division among them. So they said again to the blind, mind, the blind man, what do you say about him? Since he's opened your eyes, he said, he's a prophet. So we see there's some skepticism around this, this person of Jesus, Again, the questions have gone, you know, like he, he's stirring things up. This truly isn't a sign of the miraculous power of God. And you see that debate because they're like, how, do, how does someone do this if he's a sinner? How does, he, how does someone do this if he's not from God? And so we, we see this and I, I hope you, you hear like we, we want to, we adamantly speak out against religion. We live in a, in a very religious culture, right? And, and it's not just out there. It's not just in the city. Like it's quite possible for us to come in and use religion as a way to avoid doing the Jesus stuff. What do I mean by that? Well, we give just enough to appease God, but not enough to transform my life. We love to keep God in this safe, comfortable environment. We come, we show up on Sunday morning, we give him our five-minute devotional life, but we actually don't want to see his transforming work move in our lives or call us to go where he went or do the things that he did. And so we're like, if I can just keep this in a nice controlled environment and keep my faith to myself, keep it very privatized and individualized and, and, and just come and do my religious duty on Sunday morning, then that's enough. And, and ultimately what Jesus is going like, no, like I, I, he wants to see the power of God move in your life. Here's what I'll tell you. You will become bored with religion. If you're like, man, how do I keep this flame going? And I'm like, you actually do what Jesus did and the flame will keep going. How do I keep this on fire? And I'm going, well, you're just producing religious activity. You're just producing religious works and 
You're just seeking to, to keep the rules and make sure God is happy. When in reality, he's inviting you into an adventure. He's inviting you into so much more. So here's what I tell you. You can know the scriptures and not know the power of God. You can know the practices and you can practice the practices and not know the power of God. I can't tell you how many times I saw folks who sat back and wanted to critique. We've talked about the Asbury Revival for several weeks here. And so we look at what's happened in, in, on the college campus of Asbury. And how many people stood back and, and have critiqued? And they're like, you know what? We'll know if revival happened when this happens. And, and ultimately, skepticism keeps you sidelined. It keeps you from actually participating in the power of God. And, and so ultimately, how many times like we see in, in the Asbury Revivals, people are questioning what's actually happening rather than calling and begging for God to do that here. We stand on the, on the sideline critiquing where healing or the power of God is moving or the miraculous is experienced. And rather than saying, God, I want to experience that, we go, was it done in the right way? Did it happen on a Sabbath? Because we need to question that. And we begin to critique things rather than experiencing them, experience them for ourselves. So maybe a question for us this morning is, where have I settled for lukewarm religious fulfillment rather than empowered Christianity? How many are showing up and we're just checking the box? That's a good, okay starting place. If that's you this morning, you're like, hey, I'm just showing up. I'm going, Jesus Christ didn't go to the cross, die, persecuted, mocked, criticized for you to have an awesome Sunday morning. He went to the cross to give you a new life, empowered by the Holy Spirit. That's what he came to do. So where have you settled for lukewarm religious fulfillment rather than empowered Christianity? The last thing that keeps us from doing the Jesus stuff is rejection. We just fear rejection, right? Where do we see this in this story? John 9, 18 through 23. The Jews did not believe he had been blind and he had received his sight until they called the parents of the man who had received his sight and said, is this your son who you say was born blind? How then does he now see? His parents answered, Yep, that's our son. We know that's our son. He was born blind. But how he now sees, we do not know, nor do we know who opened his eyes. Ask him, he is of age. Now, this is his parents. His parents. Your child is born blind. His life is forever under the oppression of being blind. He's put in the streets to beg. He comes home someday. He sees. But your fear of rejection causes you to truly see Jesus for who he truly is. Ask him. It says... His parents said these things because they feared the Jews, for the Jews had already agreed that if anyone should confess Jesus to be the Christ, 
he was to be put out of the synagogue. Therefore, his parents says, he is of age, ask him. I heard Sam Storms, who's a pastor, says this, did two people ever have a greater cause for celebration? Was there ever a greater justification for throwing a party? Could joy and laughter and tears of sheer delight ever be more appropriate than now? Yet all they could think about is, what will others think of them? And should they acknowledge that this Jesus was really the Messiah after all? Fear of man. Fear of rejection. The resistance got to him. To acknowledge Jesus as Messiah for them was to step out of comfort. For Church of the Valley to acknowledge Jesus as Messiah will ultimately call us to step away from our comfort. Let me ask you, are you enslaved by the fear of man? Are you enslaved by the fear of rejection? Are you enslaved by not wanting and, or desiring to experience resistance? Here's what I would say. If you do what Jesus did, you will experience resistance. If you're not experiencing resistance, it's because you're not doing what Jesus did. How often we can idolize comfort. But growth doesn't happen in comfort, church. John Tyson says there's a continuum of Christian growth where initially we start in a place of comfort. And then we move to a place where there's an experience of caution. People are like, ah, you know, I think you should calm down a little bit. You're kind of taking this Christian thing a little too serious. To a place of deeper concern. To outright criticism. And if you're on the continuum and you're walking in the ways of Jesus and you're doing what Jesus did, it will always end in criticism. So maybe it's time for us to question whether or not we truly understand what we signed up for when we said, I'm going to follow Jesus. I'm going to give my life to Jesus. Much of the ministry that Jesus does takes place in criticism. And how often we tend to believe, and we've been tricked to believe, and we've been deceived to believe that doing the Jesus stuff happens in a place of comfort. So maybe the question for us this morning is, where am I positioning my life in a place of comfort? And avoiding the people and places that Jesus went? Or where am I positioning my life in a place of comfort and avoiding doing the stuff that Jesus did? Think about when we've taken mission trips and uh, we haven't done much of that as Church of the Valley. Hopefully someday we will, but I think of taking students on mission trips. And it's like every time we go on a mission trip, people come back and go, can you believe what God did? And I'm like, why do we got to save that and reserve that for mission trips? Why can't that be a Monday morning in March that we go, can you believe what Jesus did today? I wonder if, because when we go on mission trips, we truly believe that God's going to move powerfully. We recognize it. We truly step out of our religious practices and routine and go like, what does it look like to live into the everyday mission of God? 
And three, we're in a random place where nobody knows us and we have no fear of rejection, right? I used to tell students all the time, I'm like, go and share your faith. And it's like, oh, I'm kind of scared. I'm like, that's okay. You'll never see those people again. <laughs> Practice. Like, share your faith. Share your testimony. I don't know. I couldn't see, and now I see. I washed. Jesus washed. Jesus cleansed me. Now I see. But we, we walk, and we do the stuff that Jesus did, and, and we recognize him. We throw out religion. We throw out rejection, and we see God do the miraculous. I'm just wondering if Church of the Valley could cause such a stir that our neighbors know about it, the religious complain about it, and your parents can't explain it. That's my hope. Let's pray. Father, we pray and ask that you would take your word this morning, that you would guide it deep into our lives. I pray that it wouldn't be the words that I've spoken this morning, but even through the power of your Holy Spirit that you've directed the course of this morning, that there are people who are here this morning who are truly being transformed, who are being changed in the same way that this blind man was transformed and changed. Lord, thank you that you see us. Thank you that you, you were willing to go to uncomfortable places. Thank you that you were willing to face rejection. Thank you that you were willing to challenge the powers of religion to set some of us free, to give us eyes to see you for who you truly are. I pray that you would continue to do that work. I pray that we would be able to participate in the stuff that Jesus did. We want to do the stuff. Thank you for just that simple faith going, when do we do the stuff? Lord, thank you for using your church to do the works, to see the things. Thank you for the fact that we get to participate in that work. You've invited us into a big adventure. You said, come along. What a gift that is. Lord, help us not to settle for anything less. Let us see your power move in our lives. Let us see the power of prayer bring healing to the life of others. Lord, set us free. We pray and ask in the name of Jesus. Amen.